this is our outline of, of numbers. Um, next week we finish the book of numbers. Moving right along, <coughs> Moving right along yeah. Uh, last week we got up to this section here in part two, which is the history of the wanderings of Israel. Um, we got into the section where they were told they weren't going to get to go in the land until all that generation died. And that's only uh, five chapters long, uh, the, the section that where it takes all these guys to die. We just have very little information about it. We don't know, we really don't know when these events took place. Um, we, last time we, the last thing we did, and I think it's the last event. Yeah, the last event in the history of the 38 years while they wait was a rebellion. Who, who rebelled? Korah, yeah. Korah and who else? Yeah, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, along with about how many of the leaders of the people? 250. So this is a big rebellion. And that, that's the last historical um, feature in the 38 years. I don't know when that happened, whether it was toward the beginning, toward the end, middle, I, I don't know. Um, and then, um, I mean, this goes to chapter 19, but the, the rest of it is just some laws that don't really tell any stories. So, um, I, I didn't fi- quite finish last week. We, we still had chapter 17 to go, and I want to look at that because it's a really very important story. Um, <clears throat> after, the, after the Korodath and Abiram rebelled, how did God uh, deal with uh, the top three guys? Put forward there. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm going. I'm back in chapter 16 again. Okay, that's the Yeah, the 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 top three guys got swallowed up by the earth. Um, I mean, does that ever happen in real life? I mean, do, have you ever heard of the earth actually opening up like that? Absolutely. Yeah, it happens in w- w- an earthquake. You know, essentially. And and in fact, this area we're going to look on the map in a little bit, but the area they're in uh, has a lot of earthquakes. It's a very active uh, place. So um, God just had to arrange for one to come at the right time and open the right piece of the earth, and there these guys went. And close it back up. And close it back up. Yeah, that's important too. Meanwhile, what happened to the two hundred and fifty guys? They got burned up. They were offering incense to God. They had no right to be doing that. They weren't descendants of Aaron. (laughs) And so, um, then the next day, after all this happened, what did the congregation do? Well, now you are right that they were... God told the people... God told Moses, pick up the censers and... Make him into what? Plates to cover the altar. Yeah, as a reminder about you know, don't do this. <laughs> but the next day, the congregation. This is in verse forty-one. What did the congregation do the next day? They grumbled. 
Uh, well, said so, so you, you uh, Moses and Aaron, you're responsible for the guys. You, you guys cause all these guys to die. <laughs> this is just not smart. And of course, the consequence is even more people died. How many more died? Fourteen thousand. Yeah, 14,700. So, then God decided He was going to deal with this once and for all. He was going to show the people that He is the one that has picked Moses and Aaron. They haven't put themselves forward. I mean, that's this whole rebellion was was on the basis that you guys think you're so great. You know, who who do you think you are? And the truth is the matter that God was the one that put them up forward. So, chapter 17, how did God show them that it really was Him and not Moses and Aaron? Yeah, the rod would represent their ruling, their authority, yes. The, the ruler's staff, so to speak. And, and before they put them in the um, tabernacle, they wrote the names on them. This sounds like you know a magician's trick. You know, you write your name on this piece of paper here. <clears throat> well, we got. I mean, when something's going to happen, you got to know whose rod it was it happened to. So the next day, they got their rods back, and whose rod was different? Aaron's rod. His what represented the tribe of what? Levi. Levi yes. And what was different about Aaron's rod? The sprouted forth. Here you have this dead piece of wood and God's made it alive. And the, the lesson of, for that is that Aaron was the priest not because of his own innate life. He was as dead as anyone else. We're all dead spiritually. God is the one who gave him that life. And, and you see how this relates to us today. Um, who are the priests today? Christians are. Upon what basis do Christians have life? And the life, the life comes from God. The life doesn't come from us. Um, someone, you know, someone says, "Well, you think you're so great to be called a Christian?" No, I'm just as dead as you are. It's God that's given me the life, and that's the that's what we need to understand. We're not who we are because of of our own wonderful works. God is the one who has done this great work in our lives. So that was a lesson for them. It's a lesson for us. Um, and so then, the um, chapter 18 is not a story. It's, it's more laws. And, and the book of Numbers has quite a few of these laws interspersed. Thankfully, there are some interesting stories in between. <laughs> it's not like the book of Leviticus. Uh, chapter 18 gives the duties of of the Levites and of the priests. Basically, the chapter is basically about the fact that they are being taken care of by God. He's provided for them. For the priests, in verses 8 and following, how did God provide for the priests? They got a portion of the offering. That's right. And we saw that back in when we were doing the book of Leviticus. They, they would get a shoulder of, of an animal or, or some other part of the animal. Um, they would get part of the grain offering and you know all these different things. Um, 
Right. There, the burnt offering was the biggest exception. That got burnt entirely. Some of the sin offerings were also an exception. The sin offering for the high priest, for example, was, was also burned entirely. But for the average person, his, his sin offering, um, part of it was burnt and the rest of it went to the priest. And there was also redemption money for, um, for firstborns. Um, there's a number, number of things they were provided. But then the rest of the tribe of Levi, because of course the priests came to the tribe of Levi, but they were only one family. The rest of the tribe of Levi, how were they provided for by God? The tithe, yes. The, the, all the people of, of Israel were to give a tithe each year, and that tithe went to the Levites. And then we get something new here. Out of that tithe that the Levites got, what did they have to do? They had to give a tithe to who? Yeah, the, to, to all the priests. Yeah, Aaron and his descendants. Um, then in chapter 19, there's an unusual law that's called the Ordinance of the Red Heifer. Um, they would take this, this cow and they would burn it. And then what would they do with the ashes? Yeah, they would, the, the ashes would be put into water and then the water would be used for purification. When would you need to be purified? Yeah, it, yeah. Anytime you came into kind of some unclean, especially what? Dead body. Yeah, a dead body would be the, mo- the the biggest issue. Ordinary, average things that you would touch, unclean things, you you would be unclean until evening. But a dead body, you're unclean for how long? Seven days. And you had to get sprinkled with this water twice during that seven day period. Um, and then there was also some, you know. A whole tent might become unclean if someone died in it and they had to sprinkle the tent. Um, now, chapter 20. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Um, and Kadesh, interestingly enough, they, they came to Kadesh back in chapter 14, and that's where they'd sent the spies out. That's when they were told, you're not going to get to go in the land. Your children will. So now, 38 years have gone by. We're up to chapter 20, and notice, they go back to Kadesh. <laughs> and it's one of those interesting things where basically God is saying, you guys mess it up the first time, we're going to try again. And I've mentioned before, God does that in our lives too. Um, if you're, I can guarantee you, if you're a Christian very long and you realize you've messed up sometime, there'll be times when you'll see later on in your life the exact same thing comes up again. I mean, God's basically saying, I know you said you were sorry. Let's see if you really meant it. <laughs> I'm giving you another chance. And here they are at the very same place. Time, time to try again. <laughs> um but the first thing that happens in verse 1 is what? Miriam died, yeah. She was part of that old generation. Um, 
And then unfortunately, it would appear almost immediately that they're not ready to try again. <laughs> what happens is as soon as they get gathered here, no water. And then the people, what was their attitude? Murmuring. Uh, yeah, against Moses. It, yeah, it, it was the same thing. Yeah. If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. They're thinking, you know, back on the times when you know they got swallowed by the ground or got burned up or something like that. Boy, it would have been better if we'd died like that. Why then have you brought the? Why have you, Moses and Aaron? Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us to come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Now, I thought they'd mentioned the manna too, but I guess they didn't. Um, that was nice. <laughs> um, and interestingly enough, God did not strike them all dead at this point. Did you notice that? How different this was from previous times. Um, and one of, the cha- one of the differences, I think, and the Bible doesn't say why it's different, but I would suggest that one difference is that this is a new group of people. This group of people, for the most part, didn't see the plagues in Egypt. They didn't see the dividing of the Red Sea and all of that. They've seen manna, but hey, you know, ever since they were little kids, they've seen manna. I mean, that's just the way it, that's the way the world is. <laughs> so they're not as responsible as their parents had been who had seen all those miracles. Now, there's going to come a time when they're going to have seen enough miracles and they're going to get judged if they don't behave. And we're going to see that in, in, in the lesson today. Um, hopefully I'll get that far better. <laughs> but they, um, I, that's my guess, that God is realizes they need to be trained. But basically, they uh, every, every time the Israelites have done this, there's been a lack of faith. We understand that. But you notice where they've put their faith and where their faith lacks. They're blaming Moses and Aaron. Now, Moses and Aaron, it's not their fault. It's God. But they've put their faith in Moses and Aaron. And, and to their eyes, Moses and Aaron are inadequate for the, for the, for the uh, task. Moses and Aaron, then, at this time for, I think, pretty much... It, this is the first time they've ever really lost it like this. Um, they're losing hope too. And, and you put yourself in, the, in Moses' shoes and think about this. I mean, M- Moses, A, he didn't want the job in the first place. <laughs> but he took it. But then the people kept, you know, sinning and over and over like, you know, the the golden calf thing and all that, and Moses kept pleading with God, don't, don't kill him, don't kill him, save these people. And he did great. And then the people blew it. They wouldn't go in the land, and Moses has to sit around for an extra 40 years that he hadn't planned on. And now you've got the next generation, and they're, they're ready to go, and the next generation isn't going to do it either. I mean, you can see why he'd be very frustrated. So the people, they've put their faith in Moses and Aaron and, and it's misplaced. Moses, unfortunately, now is putting his faith in the people and that's misplaced too. 
In both cases, they should have been putting their faith in God. God is the one who will who can lead. God is the one who will take take these people into the land just like He promised. But Moses got frustrated and he sinned. Um, he said, "Listen now, you rebels! Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock?" It wasn't what God wanted. <laughs> it was God bringing the the water. And God says, because you have not believed Me to treat Me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, you won't get to come in to the land. Which, that's going to come up a few more times. I mean, that was a real grief to Moses. Um, and, and again, we think about this and we think, Boy, God, couldn't you cut him some slack? I mean, he's gone for 40 years here and it's been rough on him, but we need to put this into application in our own lives. How often, I mean, and every one of us I think would have to agree with this, how often do we do something we shouldn't have done and our attitude is, well, it wouldn't happen if you hadn't done this. You know, X or Y. I mean, how often do we do that? You know, um, of course I'm frustrated. You know, I've got all these jerks here beating on me. And God says, that doesn't cut it. We are responsible for God. We cannot blame the people around us for our behavior. And God's standards are very strict, but He gives us the strength to handle it. He's not demanding of us anything that we cannot do if we will believe God. And, and that was the issue. Because you have not believed Me. Your faith is the answer. Um, but boy, I, you know, we still feel really bad for Moses. <laughs> he's, he's, he's an example for all times. But, as I think most of you know, he actually did get to go into the land even though God told him he couldn't. <laughs> but he didn't get to go in until after he died. It was in the New Testament when he was standing on the mountain with Elijah and Jesus. So, on his own behavior, he failed. But in Jesus, he was able to go in. And so we need to keep that in mind. This is not something like, well, you know, one strike and you're out. We have a very strict God, but we also have a very gracious God. And He will give us strength. He will bring us into the land. But we need to put aside the, all these excuses that we try to make. These stories show us that those don't cut it with God. Well, um, verse 14 of, of chapter 20. They needed to go through the land of Edom. And I've, I've got to show a map here. Um, and yeah, I wish this map wasn't quite so faint, but if I turn the light off, it'll help. Um, here's Kadesh. Uh, here, they, they were down at Sinai here for a little over a year. Then they went up to Kadesh. And the spies went up and spied out the land. And of course, you know what happened then. So then, 38 years, and apparently, they were probably just sort of dispersed in, 
in the wilderness, little camps here and there. There doesn't seem to be much, um, much going on from what we can tell in the accounts. But at the end of that time, they're gathered again back to Kadesh. Now, they want to go through Edom here. Um, that's the shortest way to get... Because God's not going to send them into southern way, He's going to send them across into Jericho. The shortest way is to come right through this land of Edom, then through Moab, and then they can go in uh, across the Jordan at the fords of the uh, of at Jericho. So they sent word to Edom, "Can we please pass through your land?" And what did Edom say? No. In fact, he, they gathered an army to keep him out. So. They had to take the long way, and I don't. I, I'm a little bit puzzled by this particular path. I mean, I'm not sure we know where all these cities are, um, but I, I'm not by any means an expert in this. Um, I I would have thought that they would have had. I mean, since this is all Eden, I would have thought they would have had to go down like this and come up on to the east of Edom like that. That's and that's the impression I get from the story. But our map has put it, you know, kind of going right to Edom. And the map might be wrong, is what I'm saying. Um, then they come to this mountain called Mount Hor, which says by, is by the border of the land of Edom. And what happened on that mountain? Yeah, very dramatic. Go up on the top of the mountain, you're going to die. And they take his royal, uh, his high priestly robes off and put them on his son Eliezer. And Moses and Eliezer come down and Aaron doesn't come down and the people realize our high priest has died. And, and this generation has known no other high priest. I mean, all, all, this generation grew up with Aaron already being an old man. And he's always been the high priest. So they mourned for 30 days for him. So then they go on. and In my mind, they're going up this way. You can have them go any way you want. But this is a, a very... It's a, it's a dry desert and um, hot, different, difficult difficult task. So in verse 4, uh, it says the people became impatient because of the journey. And, and again, it would have been easy if Edom had let them go through. But Edom said no. And so they're having to go the long way around through very difficult terrain. And this time they complained about even the manna. You know, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to lie in the wilderness? And what did the Lord do this time? Fiery serpents. Sent fiery serpents, yeah. Uh, I assume the fiery means that they look like the snakes have kind of a fiery color. Um, and what, from what I read, there are lots of poisonous snakes in that area, and they, some of them do have the fiery color. So um, he, he, all he had to do was bring... You know what they already had, and bring them in at the right time, and people started getting the message, and they repented pretty quick, and this was good. Um, they they said they were sorry. Please ask the Lord. And this time he didn't just remove the serpents. What did he do? A very unusual thing. Had a standard of bronze serpents set on standard. Yeah, yeah, a pole, and then put this bronze replica of the poisonous snake on the. Pole, and if you get bitten by a snake, what do you have to do? Yeah, you have to look at the snake, and if you look at the snake, then you're okay. 
very strange way to heal snake bites. <laughs> but it's all explained thousands of years later. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Jesus told Nicodemus that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so that serpent on the pole represents Jesus on the cross. And when we and well, what would snake bite represent for us? Yeah, because of course the serpent is the one that started it all in the, in the Garden of Eden. So we get bitten by Satan when we sin. We look to Jesus on the cross. But how come Moses made a statue of a poisonous snake and put it on a pole, whereas we have the sinless Son of God on our pole? How do you explain that? Jesus took on sin represented by the serpent. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's right. So this really is a picture in advance of Jesus on the cross for us. Um, then, still in chapter 21, um, there were two... They, they, they got two victories by the end of this chapter. And um, this was not planned. The land was supposed to be this area here, west of the Jordan River. They're, they weren't going to attack Edom, and they didn't. They weren't going to attack Moab, and they didn't. They went east of, of Moab. And they, they weren't really going to attack the Amorites, which was the kingdom of Sihon. Um, they weren't going to attack uh, the area of the, the kingdom of Gog, of Og up here, Bashan. They weren't going to attack either of those. The land was, their promised land was west of the Jordan. But, they weren't the ones that started it. That they asked, they asked the Amorite king Sihon, "Can we please go through your land?" And he said, "No." Brought out an army, attacked them, and God gave them a victory. They wiped them out pretty much. And so then they owned that territory. The same thing happened with Og to the north, and so they ended up getting a lot more territory than what God had originally told them. They they got this this territory of the Amorites. They got the territory up here called Gilead and Bashan of, of Og. And they haven't yet gone into the land. Moses is still, still with them. Now begins a very interesting story in chapter 22. It goes for several chapters. Balak was the king of what nation? Moab. Moab, that's right. And here's Moab. They'd gone around Moab. They weren't going to attack Moab. But Moab was nervous about this people and they had, a, they had valid reason to be nervous about them. In fact, they're going to be enemies for centuries. It's, it's just going to be a big problem. They could see, you know, these, here's these people who have conquered two kings in a row. One of these kings, the Amorites, had conquered Moab in the recent past um, because all this land up here used to belong to Moab and the Amorites had taken it away. Now these people come in and they, they beat up the Amorites. This, this doesn't look good for Moab. So he's not going to attack them with his army. He comes up with a different plan. What's that plan? Yeah, he's going he's gonna to get a, a magician on his side. Now, I'm not sure exactly what they called these guys, 
but this he would be he 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 would be in effect the same as a witch doctor at where in South Africa where my parents are, um, and and that's the way. <coughs> That's the way he behaves, and we're we're going to see that. Um, I got to get us a little map for this, though. That's probably the best I can do. Here's the little area where, that we were in in the other map. This Jericho's right there, Moab's down here. They're going to go in and conquer this. This is the land. So that's just to get the scale. This guy, ba- Balaam, lives at Pithor on the Euphrates River. Pithor is right about here. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me it's not, it's not too far from Haran where, where Abraham's relatives are. Um, that, they sent that far away to get the guy. Apparently, he was pretty famous. I mean, this guy, uh, he knows his stuff. He he is. If you need if you need to curse somebody, you know, get the best you can get. And Balaam apparently was the one. <coughs> and from what I read, <coughs> Pethor seemed to be a city where there were where there was kind of a whole clan of magicians. Um, you know how you'll have different places that sort of have different specialties. So if you want a good magician, you go send to Pithor. So that's what he's doing. And Balaam, being an expert in in his business, has studied and he knows the God of Israel. He calls him by his proper name, which which in um, in the, the old American standard is Jehovah. In, in our version, it's called Lord, and you can't always tell it's between that and just an ordinary Lord. But um, the people that they knew that Israel had this special God called Jehovah. Sometimes in, in books you'll, you'll see it uh, written as Yahweh, because nobody actually knows how to pronounce it. <coughs> um, but, and I'm sure the Moabites knew this, you know, because every nation had their own God. Um, the, the Moabites had Baal. That's who they served. And uh, other nations had other gods. Um, and Balaam's plan here, he, he sees that obviously the God of Israel must be more powerful than the God of these other nations because the other, you know, the, Israel's winning. So there's two ways you can deal with this in, in the minds of one of these ancient peoples. One way is you can find a God that's even more powerful than that God. The other way is you can talk that God into coming onto your side and you know, turning his back on these other people. Now, from our perspective, knowing God as, as we do, this is absolute foolishness. <laughs> what could anybody possibly offer the God of the universe to talk him into doing anything? <laughs> I mean, I mean, we we couldn't even pay God to spend five minutes on us. I mean, everything he everything we have is a gift from God. It's not something that we've bought, um, and not something we've managed to finagle God into you know doing for us. 
But these, that was not these people's view. For, for these people, that they viewed God, the, the gods, as kind of like people. And you know how fickle people are. I mean, if, if you talk to somebody nice, maybe he'll, he'll, he'll change sides. And that's the way you do with the God. And so you, you, you would, you know, you find out what the God likes, and you give him lots of that, and then maybe he'll come over to your side. And that's going to be Balaam's plan here. So Balak sends up, sends word, you know, got it, you know, you could come help us out. And then God appears to him, which is quite remarkable. I mean, God would actually talk to him. But what did God say? <laughs> Don't go. More than that, more than that, what what else does he say? You shall not curse these people, for they are blessed. So God has, has set it down straightforward, and anybody who understands the character of God understands that if God says the people are blessed, either you agree with God or you're going to get trampled on because you're not going to change God. If God says these people are blessed, they're going to be blessed. But that wasn't the view of people who, back then who, who thought of all these different gods as being, you know, having you know various weaknesses and all. So, um, Balaam, it, Balaam is not a worshiper of God. Balaam is a sorcerer who's trying to get God to be on his side. There are lots of people like that today. They don't call themselves sorcerers. But, I mean, how many of your friends view God as something that they can get something out of if they're in a bind? You know? You, no need to go to church on average Sundays, but you know, sometimes you know we're in a big bind. Maybe we go to church, get, you know, might help. The same attitude that they had back then, just in a different form. But so when Balaam reports to these other people, all he says is, "Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let let me go with you." He doesn't tell them the whole story. Um, and then they go back and says, "Well, Balaam said he's not coming." <laughs> they don't even say that much. And the, the upshot of it, Balak thinks that what's lacking is enough motivation for Balaam. He just he didn't offer him enough money. So he gives him even more promises. And, and he's got Balaam pegged exactly right. Balaam is motivated by money. I mean, this is what it's about. Um, so don't be fooled by the fact that Balaam is saying the right thing. Like in verse 18, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything either small or great contrary to the command of the Lord my God. He's saying this for God. That's not really his attitude. So <laughs> um, now please, you also stay here tonight and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. That right there, he's crossed the line. That's not what you do. When God says, do not go with them, they are blessed, you're not to curse them, you don't say, well now let me just see what else he's going to say. Uh-uh. But, amazing enough, what did God say? Go with them. What? Only the word I speak to you shall you say. Now, Balaam's... Now think, put yourself again in Balaam's shoes. Balaam's job is to try to get this God away from Israel onto the side of his client. Now, at this point, has he had any success? 
And he's already gotten God to change his mind. I mean, God originally said you can't go. Now God says you can go. He doesn't have that much far, farther to go and he'll have God in his pocket. <laughs> and, that's, and that's his approach. That's his attitude. So off he goes. On the way, he has these interesting incidents with his donkey. And he finally learns that his donkey has done what? And saved his life. That's right. This donkey saved his life. And so he feels bad that he was beating on his donkey. He doesn't seem to understand that what he should really feel bad is the fact that he's not trying to serve God. That's the basic problem. Why would God send an angel to try to kill him if God's happy with him going? I mean, this is crazy. But he's blind. Money has blinded him. He's, he's got to finish his mission or else he's not going to get paid. And so he says, well, you know, if you want, I'll go back. But of course, he doesn't want to go back. And the angel says, no, you go ahead. But it's not going to work out like he, he, he hopes. So in chapter 23, he starts getting these prophecies and he, he obeys God. He, and I don't know how much choice he has because God, God may be <laughs> taking over to quite an extent here. Well, but part of that, he said, I will go back now. I will turn back. That's what he said. No, you're going ahead. Let me look and see how that's phrased. He says, Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. That's in verse 34. And that's when the angel says, No, you go ahead. Yeah. So he he gets four um, four prophecies here, and I've put them up on the on the overhead. Each of, each of them a little bit stronger than the previous one. And I just picked out, and I, and I had a, I, one of the commentaries I was looking at, picked these key verses out for me, and I agree that they're the key verse. The first one, the first discourse or prophecy, starts in verse 7. And the key verse, I think, is in verse 9. Behold, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. They are separate. They are not like the other nations. They're unique. Um, they... From there we go to the next one in verse 21. The Lord His God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. Not only do they dwell separate from every other nation, but the Lord is their king. Unlike all the other nations who have human kings, the Lord is their king. And again, I've got copies if you want afterwards. Um, and then the third one, and of course, Balak's getting more and more upset <laughs> with each one of these. The third one in chapter 24, in verse 5, How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. He sees them in this prosperous situation. They're dwelling at peace because... They're separate. They are a holy nation. God is their king. And so they, they are successful. And, um, and he, he ends up, he ends that one in verse 9 with, Curses everyone who curses you. <laughs> Boy, that's a warning there. <laughs> and then finally, at this point, Balak says, Just go home. You know, don't say anything good or bad, just go home. The Lord has kept you from getting paid. 
And so then God gives him some more things to say. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether he wants him to go home or not. And in the last one, chapter 24, verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. And ultimately, who is that prophesying? As prophet, yes, ultimately that's prophesying Jesus. The star. And I think it may even be connected with the star that appeared at His birth. You remember the, the wise men came to see Him. Um, but from this time forward in the, in the Bible, this idea of a star is connected with, uh, at times with the Messiah. So we have Balaam, who is not a believer in God in the sense that he had faith in God. Um, we, he, he is a pagan who is really trying to work against God. But we have him giving these marvelous prophecies. <laughs> God turns the, turns the enmity of uh, the Moabites and Balaam, turns it around, and it ends up to his praise and to the, the glory of his people. Now, question before I turn this one off. All right. Um, unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. Um, Balaam leaves, but what apparently happened here, and, I, and you will find it later on. Apparently, Midian and Moab kind of teamed up together, and it may be that the Midianites were the ones that told. Balak about this great guy named Balaam because the Midianites were, were, were traitors they would they travel a lot um, but Balaam apparently went back to the Midianites and came up with this next plan you see his goal was to try to attract God away from Israel and he failed at that but there's still another possibility maybe he can attract Israel away from God and that's what we see in the next chapter. Because we're going to learn later in the book, it was Balaam's plan to send these women from Moab over to, to the Israelites and invite them to their the sacrifices of their gods. And, and those sacrifices included sex. It, it, they, they were worshiping a fertility god, Baal, and part of the worship to Baal was to have sex because that demonstrates fertility. Um, you can see how these people would have just had no concept of the true God. I mean, with, with worship like this, with gods like this, they would have no concept of the true God. But the Israelites weren't doing so much better because when these women came over and invited them, what did they say? Well, it doesn't actually say what they said, but basically what they said was, Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'd love that. <laughs> and, and your worship just sounds like a lot of fun. And they got into it. And, and they, so they were, they were committing sexual immorality with these women and, and worshipped Baal. They were attending the, these sacrifices. And of course, God's not going to put up with that. Um, a plague was started. Um, and they... Um, Moses said in verse 5 to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. 
we've read earlier. I mean, if you worship idols, the the, the penalty is the death penalty. And so any any of your people, so he's commanding each of the individual judges of their own tribes. You you, you execute the death penalty on anyone that's done this. While this is going on, what happens right in the middle of it? Yeah, well, one of the Israelites go, brings in this woman into his tent. He's gonna he's gonna do the worship service right there at his tent. Um, he apparently hasn't figured out <laughs> things are not going well. Who decides to solve that problem then and there? Phineas, yes, he is the son of the high priest Eleazar, and he'll he'll eventually be high priest. He grabs a spear, goes in the tent, and apparently with one one thrust he's able to kill them both and that stopped the plague but how many died in the plague pretty bad 24,000 yeah and God blessed Phinehas and gave him a special covenant because of his zeal for God uh, I don't think so I think it's in his own tent um, No, I, I, I would be very surprised if it was anything but his own tent. Yeah. I mean, this is bad, pretty bad, but I can't imagine. I mean, there will come a time in, in Israel's history when they would have done it in the tabernacle. We'll, we'll get to that hundreds of years from now. But I, I can't imagine they would have done it at this point. All right. Um, next week, we finish the book of Numbers. <laughs> Appreciate everyone's help this morning.